Well, Jono, after many months, it's finally happened. Well, I mean, it feels like, you know, everything is happening. But to which particular thing are you referring right now, Allison? The people of Ontario got really, really mad at Doug Ford again. Ah, inevitable, probably. And this show certainly exists in anticipation of those moments. Old Dougie has been perhaps inexplicably getting a pass since basically May 2021, like around the time everyone got vaccinated for COVID-19 and was allowed to go shopping again. But yeah, before that, Ontarians really, really hated him for a while there. But since he's, yeah, he's been skating, there's been like a few dust-ups over the vaccine passport or emergency room closures, shipping senior citizens out of hospitals into long-term care homes against their will, but nothing that's really captured the public's imagination and fury quite like last week did. Yeah, it turns out there are consequences for upending our country's entire rights-based order for the purpose of screwing over a group of public servants that largely consists of racialized women. Well, outside of Quebec, anyway. And I guess in other ways, something that's happened before has again happened again, and it is the PCs backing down. Their one virtue seems to be that they'll they'll give up if you push hard enough, and just nobody's been pushing that hard until QP. We wrote this episode on Sunday and early Monday morning, and by the time we're recording this mid-Monday afternoon, the dynamics have shifted. Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, and I'm really excited to tell our listeners about how Doug Ford quietly met with the president of Hungary last week, because one scandal per episode is never enough. And I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Candleland, and I'd been reluctant to describe Doug Ford as a fascist, even with all the constitutional subversion of I generally prefer the term authoritarian. But uh, that Hungary stuff shit. And this is Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. song Bittersweet Symphony in my head quite a bit lately, um, partly because of, you know, the trailer for the new season of The Crown, which is out today, the day you're listening to this, but also because it was blasting across Queen's Park on Friday, November 4th. That was the day that the education works of QP and allies were marching on and particularly around the building to demonstrate that Doug Ford can't push them around. The song, Bittersweet Symphony in particular, calls back to almost exactly 25 years ago, to fall of 1997, when teachers were on strike across Ontario, schools were shuttered, and as someone who was in grade 7 at the time, that was a formative experience. Those strikes in those years, and the Mike Harris and later Ernie users, were a really formative experience in our understanding of labor, our understanding of where our sympathies lie, and our understanding of the value that should be placed on education. And on Friday, it was a really warm, beautiful, golden day, the nicest November day in 
memory and protests are seldom portrayed in the media or really anywhere in art even as as joyous as this one was protest strikes often start joyously and gradually become less so as a government or other employer tries to wear them down but on that afternoon in this moment it really felt like this is going to be a really big really long fight that the government hasn't adequately prepared itself for. What happened this morning is Doug Ford got up at, at you know, 9.15 a.m. And, and and spoke to the media at Queen's Park and said, we're withdrawing the Bill 28, which was the bill that uh, imposed a contract on, on QP's lowest paid education workers in the province. That's janitors, that's teachers' assistants, early childhood educators, lunchroom supervisors. Um, Basically anyone who's not a teacher or a principal. Yeah, but works in a school. We introduced the Keeping Students in Class Act legislation meant to protect the right of kids to stay in class, to learn and prepare for their future. And we used the notwithstanding clause to ensure that happened. I know that it has been controversial I've always respected the right of workers to fair and free bargaining. I'm proud of the work and the relationships our government has built with organized labor over the past four years. As a gesture of good faith, our government is willing to rescind the legislation. We're willing to rescind Section 33, but only if QP agrees to show a similar gesture of good faith by stopping their strike and letting our kids back into their classrooms. Doug Ford, he caved. I mean, there's no other uh, way to really say it. He said, we'll pull the bill as long as they come back to the bargaining table. Well, as long as they end their strike. Yeah, it's both kind of both. Both, 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 both of the things. Yeah, I mean, his more, I think, yeah, his emphasis was... On the on the bargaining, um, on the bargaining side of it. And I think I mean, there's obviously calm strategy there in, in what Ford did. He was trying to he said, basically, we the government is showing humility in saying that we'll pull this bill. And we want we're very hopeful that, that QP does the same thing. And QP had a couple hours there in the middle that they decided what they wanted to do. Were they going to keep the strike going, try to keep rallying? more unions that were behind them. There was a report in the Toronto Star on Sunday night that there was going to be a huge protest next Saturday, a potential general strike the following week. Were they going to try to go this route or were they going to claim victory? And QP claimed victory. They said, you know, this is what we wanted. We wanted this fucking bill off the off the books and that's what they're going to get and they also said kids will go back to class but we're, and we'll negotiate but if you pull this shit again we're ready and yeah. that's where it stands we won the bill is gone we won yeah. well very notably they, it wasn't just cupy at this press conference mm-hmm. It wasn't just QP Ontario President Fred Hahn solo. I mean, Fred Hahn is seldom solo, but it, it was he was joined in the Bay Bridge, and he was basically crying as they were joined by at least a couple dozen representatives of public and private sector unions in a way that it's really been quite a long time since 
we or even they have seen anything like that. This actual level of of solidarity. This was really like everyone basically there is not just a sign of strength, but really to indicate that like if you attack one of us, you're attacking all of us and we're going to pull out all the stops to do whatever is necessary for the government to not dissolve a century's worth of hard-won labor rights. Yeah, I mean, I think the phrase organized labor is um, that for is the phrase for a reason. Like these, the fact that, you know, not just QP that pulled off the strike, but how many other unions, you know, were out with billboards, you know, so in support of them within a couple days, um, like these groups aren't fucking around and they've proven it. And I think, you know, what this episode is ultimately going to be about now that we've had to rejig the rejig the story a bit here is Doug Ford's complete miscalculation of that. Before the pandemic, if you recall, teachers unions were up for a contract. There was some strikes. It wasn't every union, but there was there was labor action going on. But then COVID happened and schools closed. The teachers unions lost their leverage. They quickly, quietly kind of just negotiated contracts with the government because they had to and move things along. And and I think Doug Ford didn't, you know, he got off easy on that. And they and they had Bill 24 or went Bill 124 all the way through his term, too, which really like imposed limits on things, limited what unions could do. And I think <laughs> enough is enough is probably where the, the labor movement seems to stand right now. And, and, and the use of the notwithstanding clause in this bill was obviously enough is definitely enough it's in an their unprecedented, opinion. An unprecedented escalation. You know, back to work legislation involves generally arbitration. It means they get an arbitrator, they decide what a fair deal is, that's imposed. They didn't want to go that route. They didn't want to go through any of the normal routes that governments, let alone private sector employers, would ever go through. They wanted to dispense with the a century's worth of labor rights because that would be more fun and easy than negotiating in earnest. But this emphatically concerned everyone. This was the sort of wholesale dissolution of rights that was always sort of the worst case scenario with the Ford government from the beginning. Yeah. And there's one thing I want to point to, and I don't know how many people would have seen this clip. It is from Monday night. So just less than one week ago from when we're recording. And it is Corey Tonight. This is the, that that's the day that the bill with the notwithstanding clause was introduced. Corey Tonight, who is the Doug Ford strategist, he ran their last campaign. I think he went back to just his lobbying firm now and doesn't have an official role with the government. He, in this case, seemed to be speaking for them. He said, you know, let's just play it. This is what he said on Power and Politics. If you want to use children as a pawn, Uh, in your labor negotiations by closing schools and threatening closure of schools, you're going to get legislated back, including the use of the notwithstanding clause. You can take that to the bank because it's going to happen. So that is him, you know, I believe speaking for the government at that point, saying we will legislate you back to work and we will use the notwithstanding clause and you can take that to the bank. You know, you can assume that the teachers union saw that. You can assume that the other public sector unions saw that. And that was the explicit threat. 
to, you know, in just six and a half days, come down to Doug Ford at a Monday 9 a.m. press conference being like, we're pulling the bill. We won't use the notwithstanding clause. Notably, he did not. He was asked whether he would mm. not use it again, and he did not answer that question. Mm-hmm. But it's a massive walk back. And I think that clip shows the hubris, the level of hubris mm-hmm. that they started with, right? They, as I said off the top of the episode, the Ford government's been skating. They won an election, obviously, uh, you know, in the last few months. They've done a lot of stuff that, you know, maybe people like passed a lot of bills and made a lot of policies that people didn't like, but there was never really any uproar from it. And I think they really thought, well, this is how it is now. We can just do whatever we want and nobody is not going to be a big deal. And it's just interesting to see how shaken they got by this so quickly. I didn't think they would be so surprised. I thought they'd probably miscalculated, but I didn't think they'd miscalculated nearly this badly. And I think the question we have to ask, and I think we're, we're gonna, the question we are going to explore is how did that I mean, how did that happen? What were their oversights? And what can this teach us for other struggles going forward? There are a few different parts to that. One of the components is their previous uses of the notwithstanding clause. I think we have to, yeah, let's just let's just start with that. Just quick overview. When it comes to most right of the key rights guaranteed or ostensibly guaranteed by Canada's constitution, things like freedom of expression, freedom from cruel and unusual punishment, etc., governments can simply opt out if they feel like it. And for the first 36 or so years after the adoption of Canada's constitution, in current constitution in 1982, this opt-out clause was largely an obscurity, the sort of thing you might hear about in high school civics class and then never again unless you lived in Quebec. But back in 2018, just a few months into his government, Doug Ford whipped it out as part of his transparently vindictive and ultimately successful bid to slash the size of Toronto City Council. But in that case, he only had to threaten to use it, since thanks to a court ruling, he didn't need to actually pass the bill that included it, meaning because in that case, the Court of Appeal ended up siding with him, he didn't actually have to follow through with his threat to cut the court out of the picture altogether. In Canada's history, notwithstanding clause has been threatened a lot, hasn't been used a lot. But in the lead up to this spring's election, he went for it again, this time to overrule the judge's determination that the bill kneecapping how much third-party advertising groups could spend ahead of an election violated the charter. And we've gone on and on about that, but if you're not the sort of person who listens to Ontario politics podcasts or who can name at least two Queen's Park reporters off the top of your head, chances are that that would have slipped your notice. This time, though, with the Ford government preemptively including the notwithstanding clause, as like a prophylactic before anything had gone to the courts, just putting it in and a bill stripping labor rights from low-paid education workers, imposing a new contract and outlawing strike action, I think it's fair to say that even people who've never given a moment's thought to limits on election advertising spending or to the size of Toronto City Council probably heard about this. And again, I think this goes back to the miscalculation because I think what the Ford government thought it was doing when it put that in the bill and when it was forcing education workers not to strike was that it was making life easier for suburban parents. Mm -hmm. Like, that's who their voting base is. That's who Doug Ford cares about. In their head, those people want their kids in school and Doug Ford got reelected and that's what he says he's going to do for them. And it turns out that that wasn't the mindset. I think, you know, post-pandemic, Kids' parents very much want their kids to be in school, but I think they also maybe have a newfound appreciation for those people that work in that school. And, like, plus, there's already disruptions in schools. There are already um, not enough education workers. 
like early childhood education teacher's assistants, there's a lot of like churn in that job because it's so low paid. So, you know, if you have a kindergarten class where there's two early education workers in it, the kids all love them. But then, you know, these people aren't like they quit because they're not making enough money to live. Like you're aware of that as a parent. And I think, you know, the mothers I talk to, friends of mine that are that are moms in suburbs of Ontario, their reaction was they were mad at Doug Ford. They blame Doug Ford for this. And I think that was very far from the calculation that the PCs thought. And they were just they were way off the ball. Yeah, Ford and Lecce made a bet they, that they could get away with going after education support workers since parents would place a higher value on their kids being in class than on QP members' labor rights. That's what it came down to. I mean, the entire purpose of a rights-based constitutional framework is to ensure every person and group gets the benefit of a baseline level of freedoms and protections, regardless of how popular an individual or group might be at a given time. And that's the thing that keeps a democracy from readily tilting to tyranny, since it will never be not popular to beat upon some group. And they basically decided they could get away with this, that this would be a popular, or at least sufficiently popular decision, that they could skate through it as easily as limiting election ad spending. So what was going on over those six days between Corey Tonight saying you can take that to the bank, we're going to notwithstanding clause all of you assholes, to Doug Ford backing down? Like what what happened? What was the what were the government seeing? Well, one, the you know, the the reaction by the the opposition at Queen's Park was pretty damn tough on the on, on the PC is a bunch of NDP MPPs got thrown out of the chamber for calling Doug Ford a liar and screaming at him. Um, Labor leaders, including um, aforementioned Fred Hahn, were in the chamber during the final votes on the bill. Again, like they were in the public galleries and like their security was like trying to kick them out and they were just like screaming at the PCs. So they were getting screamed at in their faces. But, you know, I don't think that that's probably something they were at least prepared for. That's the bare minimum. That's the bare minimum. <laughs> they're, they're used to that. But behind the scenes or actually not behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, some of those construction unions and private sector unions that the PCs very excitedly courted through the, the June election campaign started to push back as well. Uh, most notably, Layuna, they're the biggest one of those unions, but they wrote a letter to Stephen Lecce saying that forcibly imposing a contract is not the answer and to do the right thing, return to the bargaining table. Another union, the Ontario Pipe Trades Council, wrote a similar letter to Lecce on Friday. From the perspective of an employer or from anyone in power, the best case scenario is always that unions are at each other's throats, that working people are at each other's throats, fighting each other rather than at the people who actually hold power. That said, I would, I mean, I'd certainly love the opportunity to grill the union leaders who had previously endorsed Doug Ford and were now aghast that he was trampling on labor rights. Like, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? <laughs> what the fuck? The idea that they would be surprised that he would do this, the idea that he would be someone other than Doug Ford, the idea that he would have in the slightest understanding of what labor rights mean and do anything to do anything to earn the benefit of the doubt, do anything to earn that trust and not just turn around and, and grind it, grind their boots into the faces of the lowest paid people in society. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. And I'm disgusted. And I really would like, 
how do you how would you get reelected as a labor leader after that? Anyway, they all eventually did the right thing, which is which is all good. And once again, it doesn't really make sense for unions to be fighting each other. But uh, oh my god, the conversations they must have had between themselves must have been incredible and so deeply cathartic to scream what the fuck at them over and over and over again. So, so this is the point in the show at which we might normally tell you about a mattress or an upstart internet service provider whose name I might utter in hushed, lusty tones. But today we're going to pitch you on something at least as important. As important as a good night's sleep at a reasonable price and an internet provider that actually gives a damn? Arguably, yes. We are going to pitch you, listeners, on supporting Canada Land, the podcast network that brings you our monthly dugwagging and so much more. So much more. Canada Land has been around for nine years. Wag the Duck, remarkably, has been part of it for half of that. In fact, it might be Candleland's longest-running series at this point, other than, of course, the flagship Monday show and Shortcuts on the main feed, and if you consider Archie Mann's Commons to effectively be a whole different show from the iteration of Commons that, that preceded it. The point is, while we have some advertisers, Candleland, and specifically a show like Wag the Dog, really only exists because of our supporters. Those of you who chip in every month because you see value in the work we do and want it to continue to exist and remain freely available, including for others who might not have the means to offer monetary support. In some ways, it feels like we're just getting started. I mean, when when Jesse, our publisher, suggested back in 2018 and the days after Doug Ford's government was first elected that maybe we should do a regular podcast covering Ford as premier, he said that, you know, if done well, it could be both very popular and very necessary. Now, I'm not sure what counts as popular in the provincial politics podcast space, but I've been thinking more and more about that word necessary. I look around at, you know, at all, all the shit we've been talking about in this episode, and I look around at an alternative media space that is lost long-standing institutions like Now Magazine. I look around at the anger, frustration, and confusion that will no longer be distilled into wit on Twitter once that platform collapses, maybe by the end of this week. And I look at this microphone in front of me, and I'm grateful that we can continue to have a platform to talk to several thousand of you on a, on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Queen's Park Today, the, the publication that I run and, and write some of the content for, is behind a paywall, and it's really geared at a, a very different type of audience than Wag the Dug. So there's so much stuff that we write about and think about at Queen's Park today that a very different group of people get access to than, than Wag the Dug listeners. And one of the reasons I love doing the show so much is because I have so many thoughts and, you know, lo- know so much about what's going on at Queen's Park that just sort of en- ends up seems like it stays in sort of this one part of my professional life. And it- it's so exciting to have this platform to be able to bring all of that to a wider audience, because like Jonathan says, there's not a lot out there that, you know, beyond mainstream media for people who want to think super closely about Queen's Park and, and Doug Ford and and. Uh, you know, all of the late capitalist dystopia that, mm. it, that it really represents. And and there's where's the space for that? I, I know. And the little that is out there, they certainly don't swear. And they certainly don't use terms like late capitalist dystopia. Going forward, we want to do more than chronicle the collapse of our democracy, or at least the gradual legislated erosion of, I don't know, name something good. I mean, we're probably due for another Greenbelt episode. And having finally returned to the studio, we're also looking to get out of it. We want to travel, see more of the province, make tangible the battles Doug Ford is fighting that don't quite penetrate the Toronto bubble. 
We did a great episode about the LRT in Hamilton almost three years ago now. It was before the pandemic. Was like, well, yeah, exactly. It was just like, holy fuck, that was It was like right three before. Years. I know. It was yeah. three. I'm glad I got to see Hamilton while it's still standing. No, I'm glad we got to do that. I'd kind of like to do more of that. Um, I'd like to see what The Ring of Fire is all about. I'm picturing Robert Lepage's production of Wagner's Gotterdammerung. You might be disappointed. <laughs> or, or even just like, like, like learn where our producer Katie lives. It's Brantford, but up until a week ago, I was picturing that as being just south of Barrie. That's Bradford. Yeah, which is Bradford, which is also the name of the lawsuit that former interim OPP commissioner Brad Blair filed against the premier a few years back. That was Blair v. Ford. Wasn't that, I think, was the character on Gossip Girl. What are we talking about again? I love Gossip Girl. This is why our discussions are not just important, but necessary. Go to CanadaLand.com slash join. The other thing that happened over the past six days is some pollsters went out in the field. Abacus data put out polling, released polling on the weekend that basically showed public opinion. Uh, you know, like I said, of my my mom friends uh, seem to be on the side of strikers uh, or of the unions with 62 percent of the people they surveyed saying they blame the province for schools being closed. So Doug Ford was being the face of the blame. And we know the one thing that Doug Ford tends to listen to and respond to our polls. Like, again, he wants to be liked. He thought this would make him liked and, and make his life easier, and it didn't. And because his his pollster, his chief pollster, Nick Kuvalis of Campaign Research, is, uh, you know, just generally quite proud of his work to the point of arrogance, he he, he uh, crows on Twitter about his findings and dares people to prove him wrong. And so we, it actually gives us some unusual insight into the information that the government itself is seeing and making their decisions upon. As recently as Friday, Tuvalis tweeted, we've been interviewing people outside the Queen's Park bubble and folks ain't happy with QB. Looking forward to, and he tags a bunch of other pollsters, to release some public opinion polling that isn't commissioned by QP or the teachers unions. I genuinely believe that the polls that campaign research were conducting on behalf of the government were likely showing uh, more support for the government's position than perhaps there actually was. Like, I believe that Nikuvalis earnestly wants to have the most accurate polling possible. There's no benefit to how to doing inaccurate polling. At the same time, you know, as is the case, can be the case with any pollster, I'm not sure the polling is necessarily as accurate as they would like it to be. And once again, we have some unusual insight. I mean, this random thing on Twitter, but like not independently verified, but very consistent with all the many, many campaign research online polls we with Allison and I have seen. Screenshots of a recent campaign research poll around this subject specifically, asking questions like, the government of Ontario and the QP union have been negotiating a labor contract for a few weeks. QP represents education workers that are not teachers, such as etc. QP said they would go on strike if they did not receive an 11% wage increase each year for the next four years. It adds up to a 52% wage increase over four years. The government of Ontario passed a law to make the strike illegal so that schools would remain open. The government is automatically giving the QP employees a 2.5% raise every year over the next four years for those making less than $43,000 per year and a 1.5% raise for every year, every year over the next four years for those making more than $43,000 per year. Who do you blame for the disruption in the children's in-class learning? And the options, as written, are the government of Ontario for not giving the education workers or teachers what they want, or the education workers union, QP, for making unrealistic demands and keeping kids out of class, or they're both equally to blame, or don't know, unsure. I don't doubt he's trying to obtain accurate information. I don't doubt that he is also trying to test 
what kinds of lines might work or might not work better or might resonate. But that's only going to get you so far. If your messaging is already framed in a particular way, I mean, that's only going to tell you what a person believes if they haven't heard anything else, right? I mean, that's I'm, I'll give them a bit of benefit of the doubt that there's some more logic or science behind this. But it's really hard to imagine how something like that could produce an accurate gauge of the population at large when the population at large is necessarily going to be receiving contrary information, contrary spin, or even just facts that are have no particular bias in and of themselves. Or maybe that are also just like, that's a confusing question. Yeah. Like, you don't, I know, like, it, as a matter of it being skewed is also true. But like, if you're doing it just like a dumb internet poll and you have to like read that many words, you're probably like, Mer. So I, I want to frame this into the recent history of the municipal elections in Ontario, mm-hmm. particularly the Brampton election, which yes. Nick Kuvalis, um very much got himself in the middle of by backing uh, candidate Nikki Cower. Uh, against Patrick Brown, um, incredibly unsuccessfully. Patrick Brown won by a landslide. Nick Kuvalis was tweeting oh, yeah. absolutely batshit crazy things throughout that, and, and I'm sorry, that is just factually accurate. But among them, he was tweeting, our polls show Nikki's winning, our show, like... He said, called other polls in, like inaccurate because his polls were showing so much support yeah. for her. So we, uh, there is a recent example of Nick Kuvalis' polling not being right. So do you think that he, because it sounds like from that question you read that that poll was put out at some point between when the government tabled the bill because what it yes. laid out is what is in the, the contract that's being imposed in the bill, the terms of... Mm-hmm. You think that he put that out at the this poll out sometime that week and that it actually showed that people support the government and then the truth was they what they don't? Without going too far into like andor type sermonizing, I do think that their arrogance is their weakness. I mean, while there's certainly necessarily an air of exaggeration in any sort of political boosterism, for someone whose primary business is polling It's hard to imagine they would knowingly make boasts that would suggest that their own polling is wildly inaccurate. Pollsters value their credibility and their accuracy so much. And so given all the options, I do think it is more likely that he was only exaggerating slightly from information that he believed was solid. Maybe. I think he's in a different position than other pollsters, though, whereas he doesn't release that data. We're never going to see the results of the poll. So, you know, he can say whatever he wants about it because the people paying it are going to see the truth and there's nobody else on the other side to judge the truth. We can also work backwards and I think reasonably conclude that the PCs would not have done this if they did not believe they were on solid footing to do so. I, I strongly suspect they also believe that by saying QP, QP, QP over and over again, that in most people's minds, that would be associated with overpaid, underworked public servants who have very cushy, secure jobs and are reasonably compensated for whatever they do in government. And But the fact is, people 
know who edu these education workers are. People know what they're, have an idea what the circumstances are. People know the jobs that they do. And people know the types of people who hold these positions. I think I think it's worth adding also that Doug Ford and Stephen Lecce, the thing they keep saying over and over again is children need to be in school. There's been all this COVID disrupt this disruption because of the pandemic. We want kids in school. That's our most important thing. And I also think that the people of Ontario don't believe them when they say that. Uh, you know, the, if the parents blame anyone, and we know this, if they blame anyone for kids not being in school for so many months and weeks and, you know, years during the pandemic, they blame the PCs for that. We know that, too. So they don't have any credibility on this. And I think that hurts them as well. You know, I mean, Stephen Lecce made it mandatory for high school kids to do online learning before the pandemic. They don't want kids in classrooms. I think it's really just a, a matter of them thinking they can strong arm everybody into exactly this, make the collective bargaining process frictionless and them be the entire boss of it and and just kind of be able to put Doug Ford away for a few weeks as their favorite move and, and just keep it going. And I mean, the whole thing is also this isn't over, right? Like because there's five teachers unions that maybe more, at least five teachers unions that still need to negotiate their contracts. Mm -hmm. So this puts the labor movement on a on a more, way more solid footing, I think, than they would have been if all of this didn't happen as they move into these teachers' negotiations. So I guess we we can't really expect this story to be going anywhere anytime soon. Originally, when we did this episode, I was planning to end it by talking about the miscalculation or the possibility of miscalculation as a ray of hope. And the fact that they didn't count on solidarity. The fact that I don't think they understand what solidarity means. And I don't think they ever really considered what the consequences of going after all unions, going after all workers would be. Not only would it effectively keep kids out of class, but it was on its road to keeping a lot of things out of a lot of things. They were barreling towards a general strike, as Allison noted. And that doesn't seem to have been on their radar. They did not think that people would side with unions. They did not think people would see themselves. That, once again, that arrogance is a weakness. Going forward, it can be used against them. And now it's time for Foreseeable Disaster of the Month. What is your foreseeable disaster this month, Allison? My foreseeable disaster is that Doug Ford will quietly meet with the president of Hungary's authoritarian regime, and we'll also give a patronage appointment to a person who ran for a far-right Italian Senate seat. Oh, wait, he already did both those things in the past week. Wow. Tell me, tell us more about those things, Allison. Absolutely. Uh, so Queensborough Today reported uh, on Doug Ford's meeting with Catalin Novak. She is the president of Hungary, um, nominated for the job by... Prime Minister Viktor Orban, and very much, she was a former cabinet minister for him, so very much part of his uh, regime there that has 
basically turned that country into an, an illiberal democracy, passed a bunch of anti-LGBTQ laws, anti-migrant laws, really just made it the... Um, Probably the most conservative. I mean, conservative is pretty nicely, but certainly the most authoritarian country in the EU. Yeah, absolutely. And like very beloved by the far right in the United States mm-hmm. as well. That just makes Catalan Novak a very weird person for Doug Ford to have a secret meeting with. So I found out about it via her social media. She was like tweeting it up a storm. She was sharing it like crazy. So it was no secret on her end. Um, but the the premier's office certainly didn't mention it. It wasn't uh, she wasn't discussed as a guest at Queen's Park or no government release about it, which is like in marked contrast to like when the mm. German chancellor um, Olaf Scholz was in at Queen's Park uh, a couple months ago. So the premier's office was hiding it on purpose, I think is fair to say, or not talking about it on purpose um, because they knew it's weird. If they didn't think it was mm. weird, they would have talked about it. The other person that she met with when she was in Ontario was Jordan Peterson, who she talked about how she likes him because he hates woke ideology. I mean, like, this is the type of uh, woman we're talking about here. So, yeah, I mean, I think and, and also notably, I talked to Global Affairs Canada and in the, in the prime minister's office. Nobody in the federal government met with her while she was here because meeting with her is weird. Because the other thing is that that Hungary's position on the war in Ukraine is very, very far afield from from Canada's. Uh, Orban has called for the sanctions, the EU sanctions against Russia to be dropped. They have like the, one of the only countries that isn't providing aid to Kiev. So it's just like so far from like what Justin Trudeau and, and Christopher Freeland or whatever or Doug Ford's own statements happen to say about all of these policies that it just it. It makes it a very weird move. And I mean, the opposition, we asked the opposition critics at, at, at Queen's Park about the meeting and their response was very much like, well, birds of a feather fly together. This is same week we're seeing Doug Ford use the notwithstanding clause, as we discussed, um, or seeing him last week was when he had Ontario lawyers fighting against a summons for him to speak at the Emergencies Act inquiry. So dodging, you know, <laughs> overriding uh, democratic norms. Yeah, messy, messy. And Italian far right? How are they doing? Oh, the Italian far right, of course. Uh, Mario Cortellucci. Are you familiar with that guy's name? I'm familiar with Mario Kart and Luigi. Uh, But refresh me on Mario Cortellucci. Mario Cortellucci is from Vaughan Woodbridge area. He is a massively wealthy landowner and residential home developer He's been tied to the Fords going all the way back to the Rob Ford era um, as just a a large donor, including lots of members of his family uh, have donated to uh, Doug Ford himself, to the PCs for years and years and years. And it turns out last week he was appointed as part-time member of the York Region's Police Services Board. And the police services boards are kind of the intermediary between provincial politicians who can't direct police and the police. So they're kind of the provincial. Theoretically, the civilian oversight agency of a given police service. They are responsible for hiring and firing the chief, for setting general policy, and the relevant municipality and the province sort of gets to appoint people to it. And they set priorities for the police force as well. So something that the province doesn't do, but these guys get to. Anyways, Mario Cortellucci, he ran for a far-right Italian Senate seat in 2018 under the banner of a party that 
I believe is was linked to uh, Berlusconi, to Italy's current new prime minister, Georgia Maloney, the uh, that campaigned on like mass deportations of of migrants, anti-LGBTQ stuff. I guess the Italian Senate oddly lets people that don't live in Italy have some seats on it. So that's what he was going for. He did not win, but that like sparked controversy in Vaughn because the mayor at the time, who is... Uh, now the predecessor to Stephen Del Duca endorsed him, and everyone was like, "Why, mate? You are mayor. You can't just endorse people for Italian Senate seats. This is all very weird." Anyways, he's also uh, in his capacity as a developer gotten all the sorts of different patronage favors from the Ford government over the years, including ministerial zoning orders that are, um, you know, for lands he owns that can now be developed really quickly. The PCs sold him or Ontario Power Generation sold him the Hearn power plant waterfront lands in Toronto for a really like bargain basement price back in 2019. He's also, uh, his family is one of the ones that were investigated in that Toronto Star National Observer piece uh, about the the Highway 413 and, and all of the landowners along it that, that are going to likely see their holdings skyrocket in value once that highway is built. All of these things on top of each other. Plus, oh, another one. He uh, donated $40 million to the Cordellucci Vaughn Hospital, which is only allowed to be called the Cordellucci Vaughn Hospital because the PCs changed the rules about putting people's names on hospitals ah. just for him. Really? Mm-hmm. What was that bill called? Strong hospitals having names. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyways, I mean, what I think about this is like, there's no good um and i mean the word good in um you know in a bad the terms, way. <laughs> well no, no yeah the terms of like pure you know reason for a guy like mario cordellucci seems to be to want to be on the police services board you know why do you want such a power over who the police chief is rich Italian land developer. <laughs> I mean, it's clear he wields power already or else why is the government giving him so much stuff? And why does he now want power over the police? And why is the government giving him that? You know, like we think of things that that Doug Ford does that like the phrase is always like favors for his developer friends. Sometimes it's not a favor, you know? <laughs> so like, why are these really your friends? friends? Or are, is there another type of influence that is making you give them everything they want? You know, if that's what this guy wants, why does he want it? And why are we giving it to him? And what's your foreseeable disaster, Jonathan? And my foreseeable disaster is that Doug Ford will engage, take a meeting with uh, Jair Bolsonaro, uh, unaware that he no longer holds power in Brazil, uh, perhaps just because he's mistaking him for his old friend, Giorgio Manolini. <laughs> And this is Wag the Dog. A podcast about fascism. I'm Jonathan Goldspee, and you can find me on Mastodon at goldspeesocial.mastodon. I don't know, it's some mishmash of words in some order. If you type, if you know how to spell my name, type it in there. Maybe you'll find it. I don't know. I also occasionally host Shortcuts, which is the media criticism show that comes out Thursdays on the main Candleland feed. I'll probably be doing another one of those soon. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at Queen's Park Today. 
Our producer is Katie Lohr, Andre Peru is our production coordinator, and our theme music is, as always, remixed by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener-supported. Go to canadaland.com slash join to help us keep this podcast going. You can listen for free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We have a whole bunch of episodes we've done over the years about workers and labor rights. 